0: Welcome back to New Books and Sports Podcast, a channel on New Books Network. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and our guest today is Brad Belugian, author of the upcoming book, Wax Pack, On the Open Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife. And that book will be released April 1st. Brad, thanks so much for being with us today.
1: Thanks for having me on, Bob. Great.
0: Brad earned a PhD in entomology from uh, Cal Berkeley, spending a year in Tahiti while earning his doctorate. And while he was there, he discovered two new species of—I'm sorry, twenty new species of insects. He's currently director of the Natural History and Sustainability Program and teaches biology at Merritt College in Oakland, California. Um, Brad. Tell us where you grew up, and your involvement in sports, and any professional parts of your career that I just left out.
1: <laughs> uh, well, I grew up in a small town in Rhode Island, and was in Rhode Island through high school. Made my way to California after college and have basically been uh, been in California ever since. And I have an unusual hybrid career of uh, teaching and, and writing. And um, as you said, I, I uh, teach at a community college in Oakland, and direct a natural history program there. And then I uh, am a freelance writer and journalist.
0: Okay. Talk about the, um, how the idea for Wax Pack came about.
1: Sure. Well, um, you know, we, I think as someone, as a writer, as someone, uh, who, you know, who does this for a living, my, my brain is always, is always churning about what, what could be a good book idea. And as a kid, I'm someone who grew up like a lot of us did collecting, you know, thousands of baseball cards going down to the store and and getting wax packs. And, um, and I, you know, especially that era in the mid to late eighties, I just, I had so many of these cards and I always, you know, I was always a a little unusual in that I, I always liked the guys that were the bench warmers and kind of the, the more scrub players. My favorite players were growing up were guys like Marty Barrett and Don Carmen and, uh, So I always wanted uh, a chance to write about those guys. But, you know, I mean, no one's going to write a no one's going to read a a book, a biography of of Don Carmen. So one day I I had this I was looking at an old pack of cards and I had this idea that, you know, a a pack seemed very um, analogous to a book. You know, you have a a pack has 15 cards, a book has 15 chapters. And I just kind of had this this idea bubble up from the subconscious of being constrained by the randomness of a single pack like what if you just got a one pack that had never been opened and whatever guys happened to be in there those would be the guys you would track down and write about and kind of tell the story of you know the ultimate where are they now and um for me um you know i, I always knew that in, in any given pack most of the guys are, are not going to be the superstar so it gave me a chance to write about some of these guys um, that I would have probably not, not been able to write about otherwise.
0: So when did you buy this pack and where did you buy it?
1: Well, so the actual pack, I mean, the, um, and, and in full disclosure, I I have this in a footnote in the book itself. I did open more than one pack just because I knew if I open up one and like seven guys are dead, you know, that's not going to be a very good book. Be a short Uh, one. (laughs) Yeah. So I, um, I opened a few packs, uh, but I, I say the integrity of the pack was kept intact in that um, I didn't mix and match, you know, cards from the packs. I mean, that that was all one pack that I opened. Um, and I got, you know, you can get, there's a, a market still, you can get packs off of eBay. So, you know, just go on there and order a pack and uh, it doesn't cost very much still, you know, and, and there you go. And why
0: 1986?
1: 86 was the first year that I collected cards. So one of my best friends, a guy named Jesse, he and I were sitting around talking about, you know, cards from that era. And I think those, you know, I, those cards, that, that, that era, 86, 87, 88, I mean, I can still remember the, the, the images of those cards are burned into my memory. And so since 86 was the first year uh, that I collected, I thought that would be a good you know, a good year to go with. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, were you um, excited or even intrigued by the players from the pack that you pulled?
1: Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I was um, it was it was a great mix. Uh, So most of the guys play, I think all of them except for one played at least 10 years in the big leagues. Um, Jaime Kokenauer was the most obscure guy. He only played parts of, I think, four seasons with the Brewers. Uh, but Don Carmen, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, lefty for the Phillies was my favorite player growing up. And so, you know, he was really, um, he was sort of the one I was most thrilled about writing about. Um, but yeah, it, it's a, you had a mix of geography of, um, you know, lesser known players, uh, different positions. So I, I thought it was a really, a really good mix.
0: And you grew up in New England, but you liked a guy like Carmen who was in, in, um, Philadelphia, I
1: mean, why? Well, yeah, it's kind of a silly story that uh, when I, I mean, for, for one, I should say I've never been someone that kind of follows the crowd. So I, I should have been a Red Sox fan because everyone else was, but that was a good reason for me, for me at age five to not want to be a Red Sox fan. So my for whatever reason, as a five-year-old, I had a, a favorite letter, which was F, and I heard the name Philadelphia Phillies. And I thought, you know, you I couldn't imagine a, a, a more perfect name uh, for a team. And of course, at that point, I, I, I didn't realize it was all PHs, but I was, I was already hooked. So I became a Philadelphia sports fan for life.
0: And as you said, there's 15 cards in the pack, and uh, actually, when you pulled it, there was 14 players because I believe one of them was a checklist.
1: Yeah, and that you know that gave me a little bit of angst. Like, what do you do with this? So you know, I had a lot of Ideas about what to do with the checklist. I ended up using it as the essentially as the epilogue chapter, Um, Hmm. but would have been a lot more work to track down all the guys on the checklist.
0: (laughs) And as it turned out of, of those 14 cards, only one of the one of the players had passed away and that was Al Cowens. That's right. Yeah. So. Here, here you are, you want to do this book and you, you have obviously have logistics. How did you plot this cross country trip? I mean, did you contact the players? I mean, you had to obviously, you know, map everything out and you also had a time frame, if I understand correctly, that you had to get this done within a certain amount of time.
1: Yeah, um, I did. So that was made it interesting because I had to get back. Well, I was going to a, a buddy's wedding on a um, particular date, and then I, I'm a college professor, so school started shortly after that. So I, in the back of my mind, I was always like, "Well, you know, if I break down in in Iowa for a few days, this could really this could really <laughs> throw me off." But um, but no, this was this was truly a a long term project from conception to the day it comes out in April. It'll have been about six years Um, and I spent almost a year before I took the road trip just doing the planning. So, I mean, I got a map of the United States out. I looked at where all these guys were located and then I set out to basically track them all down ahead of time to let them know what I was doing and use whatever means I could to contact them. So. It was um in some cases, it was easier than others like i I remember I just googled Rance Mullenix, and it, he happens to be a a real estate agent now, so you know you every the the easiest person's phone number to get in the world is a real estate agent that's true um so that was not too bad, but then there were other situations where um it was much harder to get to guys, and I had to you know you had kind of become like a stalker to, to find people. And even when you found them, it didn't mean they were going to talk to you. So that's another part of the book that I think it makes it more interesting is that not all the guys would talk to me. And so, uh, but I still was determined to write about them. And so it, those chapters are more about, you know, the lengths that I went to, to try to get to them in often, you know, comical ways. And you didn't
0: exactly take this trip in a straight line. I mean, you didn't go across the Southwest. You jolted back and forth a couple of times.
1: Yeah, and I got to say also for people that are listening that um, you know I didn't have any any special uh, resume. I mean, I I'm a I'm a fan of that era, and I'm a writer, but mostly I write about science. I mean, I'm a, a biologist, um, so that was also a challenge. Was I didn't have uh, an in? You know, I wasn't like I was already a, a personality in sports journalism, or I had connections, um, which I think is uh, you know. A testament to the guy how many the fact that so many guys were so gracious to me was really uh, a testament to you know their their generosity and their their you know true interest in in the people that follow them
0: so um in total, how many miles did you travel on this trip
1: uh, I logged eleven thousand three hundred forty one miles in seven weeks in my now, I still drive the same car somehow miraculously. It's now got two hundred and forty five thousand miles on it, my two thousand two Honda accord but yeah it was uh it was definitely a breakneck kind of pace. It's a great ad for Honda yeah seriously I should should get in touch with them, really,
0: they can finance your next trip
1: yeah
0: um in a ballpark figure, um how much money do you think you spent on this <laughs> traveling
1: well, I think. My budget for the travel was something like, I want to say $7,000, maybe eight grand. I mean, um, and you know, I also, I didn't have an advance when I took the trip. I mean, this was, this was challenging financially because I was funding my own, my own journey. Well, how many cups
0: of coffee did you drink?
1: Yeah. Um, (laughs) yeah. what was it? 140 some, I think. I don't even remember. I mean, so many, I'm drinking some right now. So I, even though it's no time.
0: Understood. Now in the book you write that, um, and I'm quoting here, fishing is not about catching fish, which I thought was a really great line and a good analogy for your book. Do you, do you agree with that idea?
1: That it's uh, a good analogy for the book? Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think that says a lot about what the book's about. And now I tell people that this is really not to disappoint all my fellow baseball fans out there too much, but this is not really a book about baseball, Um, you know, baseball. And there's plenty of baseball in there, so it's not going to disappoint you there. But baseball is kind of a vehicle for some bigger themes that that we get into.
0: Yeah. I remember um, I talked with you about 5 years ago when you came to Tampa and at the time you said your goal was more than just to interview these guys you wanted a personal connection with them and do you feel like um, after you did completed this pro- project that you've achieved that goal
1: Yeah I mean I say you know one of the things one of the themes in this book is vulnerability you know what makes what makes a compelling character in a story is is a character that has a lot of Complexity and emotion, and I think showing vulnerability is a very attractive and endearing trait um, for someone you're writing about, especially guys like this. I mean, these are guys that are from an era that where it was not cool to show vulnerability. I mean, the old the old line from uh, A League of Their Own, you know, "There's no crying in baseball," right? right. And uh, And yet what surprised me over and over again on this trip was how quickly in in the span of after having just spent maybe an hour with some of these guys, how quickly they they got very real and emotional and showed a lot of vulnerability. Um, And so, uh, you know, I was uh, kind of kind of flattered and, and, you know, really awed by that. And again, it was a real treat that they would open up that much to me without even knowing me really.
0: And you did more than just sit and chat with these players. I mean, you bowled with Randy Reddy, and I'm not going to give the score unless you want to do it. Uh, you watched Kung Fu with Gary Templeton, Kung Fu movies, I should say, and you watched Steve Yeager in his in his sub shot, in Jersey Mike's place in California. And Mullenix gave you a, a hitting lesson. I mean, that was uh, that was that one on one interaction with all these guys.
1: Yeah, well, I think you know that that was all very intentional. I mean, I wanted to get them in situations where we could where well for one they would just be more natural you know we're just having a conversation so if you're sitting across someone at a at a dining room table you know boring into them like that's that it's a very different atmosphere than if you're you know at an art museum together or you're lifting weights together so so there was the aspect of of wanting to Establish that rapport, but also from a journalistic perspective, it's a lot more interesting as the reader to get all these details and, and these scenes, to imagine these scenes of these players in, in these different, in different settings and environments. And, you know, I really like, I really think about this book as, you know, yeah, my story is in there, but I, I'm also kind of the proxy for all the people of my generation that grew up you know, with their baseball cards as their best friends. And I'm the proxy for them to now see, uh, what these guys are like in three dimensions, you know, as real people, uh, I'm, I'm your eyes and ears. Uh, and so, you know, that was, that was always my mission was thinking about the, the ultimately the reader and what are they going to get out of this, this, this experience.
0: And I got the impression that some of the players are, you know, almost amused by the fact that you were, you know, looking them up, and it's it's kind of a, in a way, it's a combination of you know Charles Caralt, you know, I'm going around the country, or or Larry Ritter, you know, glory of their times, although you know, he talked with real old timers, and you're talking with guys basically in their fifties, maybe even sixties. Um, so, um, you know, and of course you get to to meet your idol, Carmen. And he he has an interesting job. Talk about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, wow. One of the, I mean, Carmen has a truly unusual job in that he's now the, basically the personal staff psychologist for Scott Boris. So, you know, Boris has the biggest names in baseball. And when these guys, Bryce Harper or, um, Steven Strasburg, you know, when they're in season and they, and they hit a skid, they're calling Don Carmen and Don Carmen is literally getting on a plane the next, the next moment and flying to where these guys are and, and talking to them. And, um, you know, that's, that's his job is to, is to, we met, we all know baseball, is such a mental game. So that job is so important in, in the game.
0: Yeah. Plus, you know, getting to meet meet the guy that you idolize as a kid. I mean, you met him once before, I think, in Clearwater during spring training when you were, you said you were 5'2 and you were 6'3 or something like that. And so what was it like to meet him as an adult? You know, I remember meeting my favorite player when I was a kid was after Mickey Mantle was Bobby Mercer. And when I went to go interview him one time as a reporter at, at Dodgertown in New York, the Yankees were up there. And I went to talk
1: to him and I went, oh, 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 you know, just sort of tongue-tied. Right, Did you feel right. comfortable talking with Carmen? Well, I, I put on a strong face, you know, I think, <laughs> you know, sometimes uh, we often, we often think in life about how we, we, we describe how our feelings influenced our, our actions. And sometimes it's, I think, better to think about how your actions can influence your feelings. So I, I, yeah, I was excited. I was nervous. I was all of those things. But I said, you know, I'm going to do, I'm going to power through here. And I, I was always, despite all those emotions inside, uh, I, I always tried to remind myself that that first and foremost, I was a journalist. You know, this isn't a PR project. This isn't, uh, me, you know, ghostwriting their story. This is me as an independent journalist with serious questions about big themes. Uh, and even if it's my, my favorite player of all time, I have to try to maintain some of that objectivity and you know I, I always look at it, as long as you're as you're honest in your writing as long as you say yeah this is my favorite player you know it's okay to to have those feelings um, it's just when, when you when you don't disclose things that you get in trouble I'm Alex Rodriguez and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg this is the deal each week you're here as in conversation with business icons This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment.
0: That is a harsh
1: lesson in business. Sports is not uh, as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Right.
0: Well, I know at least one player, I think, wouldn't talk to you, and one never showed up. After you made a lot of negotiations with his son and a third guy, you're probably still walking through his neighborhood trying to find him. You can, if you want to talk about those three,
1: (laughs) Sure. I don't want to
0: put any any spoilers out there, but I mean, certainly uh, a little big net about each one would be cool.
1: Yeah. um, So Carlton Fisk, who, you know, I think from my research has, has already has kind of a reputation for being a recluse and not the most media friendly guy. Unsurprisingly, ahead of time, he just flat out said, no, I'm not going to – I'm no interest in working and talking to you. Um, And, I mean, he didn't say that literally, but that was the message. And uh, and so for for Fisk, I decided that I was going to have some fun with it. And I found out from a source where in Sarasota, this really exclusive private golf club that he, he goes to, regularly and i decided i was going to hatch this whole scheme where i pretended to be a multi-millionaire interested in buying a house on the golf course so i could sneak in and try to ambush him on the on the on the property so that whole chapter is about that that whole scheme that i cooked up and i think it's it's one of my favorites because it's a little more lighthearted it's you know it's kind of fun
0: Right. But don't you think the, the um, people at the golf course would have, you know, cast a wary eye even driving him in a 2002 Honda?
1: Yeah, well, that's, uh I kind of worked that into the narrative there. <laughs> <You> <laughs> make a fair point. Um, so I, uh, and then Vince Coleman also w- did not want to be found. So for Vince, I went back and f- and retraced his childhood in Jacksonville. And I found the church he went to and his high school and, even the house he grew up in, uh, talk about that. And of course, famous Doc Gooden, uh, had negotiated. He was the only player who had demanded that I pay him to talk to him. And I had agreed to do that and provided, of course, I would disclose that in the book. And, uh, I ended up in his living room surrounded by his accolades. Very surreal. Here I am in Doc Gooden's living room and Doc Gooden isn't even home. So I met with his son and it's a pretty sad story. Uh, You know, we all know kind of Doc's demons and I just happened to coincide with, uh, you know, a rough, a rough patch for him. So, you know, know, uh, a a very tragic story there with with Dwight Gooden.
0: Right. And it didn't get in the book, but I know when you came to Florida, you meant to go speak with his coach, Billy Reed. You want to talk about what that meeting was like? Uh, well, I
1: actually did, I, I did put a few a few quotes in there from Billy um, oh, you did, but, okay. Yeah I didn't end up writing it at length about that but well that was one thing I you know I wanted where I could I wanted to talk to the guys that had played roles in their lives so I actually met with Gary Templeton's high school coach in uh Santa Ana California I met with Billy Reed in in Tampa I met with um Bob Ward in Oklahoma, who coached Don Carmen, and to get their perspective on what these guys were like at a really young age. And, you know, I mean a lot I mean a lot of these guys I mean in um I mean Gooden was clearly a superstar from the very beginning, but someone like Gary Pettis, who's in the book, I talked to his high school and college coaches, and Gary Pettis got cut from two junior colleges in, in the Bay Area. And ended up a gold glove. He won, what, five or six gold gloves for the Angels. So that's the thing is that, you know, the guys that had the most talent, of course, didn't necessarily mean that they they ended up making the major leagues. But I knew that all these guys, by virtue of just being in that pack, they all did make the show. So part of my quest was figuring out, well, what do these guys all have in common that, that got them there when so many other guys did not? And one of the
0: things I like too is that when you talk with Templeton and he didn't, um, he didn't dodge it when you brought up, or maybe he brought up about the, the gesture when he was with um, the Cardinals.
1: Yeah, that was, I mean, to me, that's kind of one of the highlights of that chapter is it, it may be one of the first times that that story has been told in it's in its true, in all of its complexity and depth and, um, you know, he really there's a, a whole other side to that story that, that hasn't really been told before that gives you some pause about how Gary Templeton's career played out and his legacy. I mean, I think he was, you know, kind of treated unfairly uh back then, but that's you know, that's all part of the, the story.
0: And you opened the book with a with a pretty interesting chapter when you visited the tops company in Pennsylvania and you talked with um, some of the workers. Talk about that. That was a, to me it was extremely fascinating. Watching them or reading about how they how they worked and what they did and what they were how they enjoyed their work.
1: Yeah, that was um, a scene that my agent's wife. We were talking about the book early on, and she was like, you know how do these cards get made? And what if you could talk about a little bit about that? And so I actually went and decided I wanted to try to find the the actual factory workers that manufacture the cards in 1985. And, you know, that, I mean, that's not an easy thing to do, to track down these people, you know, um, 35 years later and try to find them. But I, I was able to locate several of them and was able to meet with them and kind of get a very detailed description of what in, what went into making the cards. And those people, they, they love, they love tops. I mean, tops was like a, a family to them. And, uh, you know, it's, it's also, it's a story that's, that's, I think played out a lot of places in, in America where, you know, this, Kind of small factory town manufacturing, and those jobs don't no, don't exist as much as they did back then. So, you know, Tops no longer makes the cards in that town in the factory. Uh, so it's uh but it, it was a special time for for those people.
0: And you talk with with Mary Lou, and she was talking. About, I think in the book, talking about a goal of one hundred and seventy packs, and I I'm trying to remember if it was a minute or hour or day, how many packs per shift, right?
1: Yeah, she, I you know I forget off top of my head what the metric was, but yeah, she you know how many these packs could you assemble in a in a short amount of time? It was, you know, they were they were on they, they were on an assembly line. I mean, but they they really enjoyed the work. They seemed to. I mean, they're all they're still in touch now. A lot of them.
0: Well, what was the most interesting piece of information that you discovered from all of your travels? If you if you narrow it down.
1: Well, um uh I mean I think there are some there's some big conclusions that that I draw from the I mean really the the book is is exploring again beyond beyond baseball it's it's kind of looking at what uh what are the qualities that that allowed these guys to be successful, not only playing baseball, but then in their post baseball lives. And, you know, I have this, this line that baseball players are accidental Buddhists in that they, uh, without even knowing it, sometimes they were really, really good at living in the present. And, you know, one of the themes of the book is, is kind of how to, how to live your life. If You know, we all want to be happy. I think that's a universal goal. We all deal with a lot of suffering in our lives, and you know in a way, baseball players are a good model for for how to live a, a happier life because they are able to uh, to kind of appreciate and, and be present without without becoming attached to that and they're able to let things go um, at least a lot of them are not all of them the guys the guys that haven't been able to let things go are the guys that are still you know hanging on to the past or never were able to adjust to life after baseball Um, but by and large i think a lot of the guys they they all struggled with the transition when they stopped playing but you know now it's been 30 years and most of them are i say doing a lot better right because you
0: can't you can't be young forever and baseball players and athletes in general more than anybody else in real life know that by the time they're 35 they're pretty much they can't do it anymore so they got to find something else
1: yeah and you know i think also one of the things that i mean again to me the this book really is for is for it's for people like me i mean for fans for people that grew up you know watching the game loving the game loving baseball cards um but one of the nice things i think about how or one of the things that people take away from it is actually how much you you have in common with these guys you know kind of breaking down this this notion of like the hero and the fan and, and showing people that they have a lot more in common with major leaguers than they ever realized. And major leaguers have a lot more in common with just regular people than they may realize when they're playing.
0: And what was the most surprising thing that you discovered? Probably a few things, but
1: yeah, I think for sure, uh, some of the darker aspects of like how many of these guys were abused by their, by their fathers, you know, like I was talking earlier about the vulnerability and the emotion. I didn't expect that. I didn't think when I started talking to these guys that I would hear all these stories of fathers that walked out, that abused them, that were alcoholics. Um, it makes, you know, a, and then how did they then, what were they like when they became fathers? Right. And there's a lot in there about, I mean, the father-son relationship is, you know, is an ethical. And a, lot of
0: the, and a lot of the coaches became father figures for these players, too.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. So So the different manifestations of the father-son relationship, you know, masculinity, these are all things that, that come out in, in the story.
0: And uh, in the book, you also threw in slices of your own life, like you said, and you bared your soul several times. <laughs> do you think it was good therapy for you to blend that in with your uh, with your journey with the players?
1: Yeah, I think not only was it good therapy, I think it makes for a much better read. Um, you know, I always felt like this book was extremely ambitious because I was trying to do... Things that you know you don't see this this kind of book that often because I was combining a lot of different genres and approaches. I mean, you've got travel, you've got baseball history, you've got memoir, um, and then you know here I am. I'm trying to tell my own story while I also weave in fourteen profiles essentially of these players. And so you know most baseball books are either a sort of a straightforward. Um, biography or autobiography, or they're, you know, just a a kind of straight reporting about a team or a season. You know, I'm kind of mixing up a lot of different things here where I'm I'm telling, it's not just a memoir, it's also the player stories, but it's also some history and some travel. Um, So, you know, I hope I pulled it off. I mean, I, I know it was a it was a tough thing to take on.
0: And um, there are the listeners going to have to read about it, but I'll ask: Are you still in contact with the yoga instructor, the yoga dancer? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, the no. And actually, we went we went to yoga together. We, she wasn't actually an instructor. Uh, but oh, okay. He was a a coach for for different uh, corporate figures, but um, no, I, I haven't. I mean, we're I think we're we're friends on Facebook, but uh, we're not we're not in regular touch right now. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, it's just one of the more humanizing aspects of the book too, because, like you yeah, say,
1: yeah, Um Well, right. So I mean, the, I, th- I think that I think in any book of literary or narrative nonfiction, for it to work, you, you the reader has to be emotionally invested in in the protagonist and in the characters, right? And again, that's part of why I wanted to share my story was because. I'm kind of the connective tissue in this book, right? I mean, there's these players, but they come in and out of the, the narrative. So I know I, you know, I knew I had to, um, I had to have the reader invest in me to keep reading.
0: So here's the part of the interview where I ask you what I've missed. Is there anything in, that you'd like to add about the book that I haven't talked about or that we haven't discussed already?
1: Um, No, I think, you know, I think we've, we've hit on on the main points. Um,
0: I covered it all.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We got, we got stuff down.
0: Not bad. Not bad. Well, this has been very interesting and I know that your time is valuable because you have so many things in the fire. Um, Do you have another project in mind?
1: Yeah. I mean, I have, yeah, I have other book ideas, but, um, they're not – nothing I want to do anytime very soon because, you know, it's just, as I said, it's a six-year process. I think it'd be good for me to – I feel like, you know, I, I just threw a, a 60-yard Hail Mary. I need to throw – I need to do a little West Coast offense for a while. You know, you A couple some, short like, passes. Five and 10-yard passes, yeah. Do <laughs> hmm. you still
0: um, – I mean, you collected cards when you were a kid. Do you still have your cards?
1: I do. I, you know, I was trying to give – a bunch of them away to my seven-year-old nephew the other day, and I was really disappointed that he was like he took a few, and then he was like, "Nah, eh, I'm I'm good." Because I know when I was seven, I would have died if I if someone older had given me their their cards. But you know, it, it made me start thinking about with kids today. You know, is there an equivalent? Do they collect anything? I mean, with such a digital world now, you know, do do I, mean, I think it's kind of human instinct to collect but what are they collecting
0: well i know for example tops had the um, digital cards you could collect so that was you know you can get it off your phone so maybe that was their their channel of trying to reach the newer generation of kids
1: yeah but i think it's i think it's such a, a niche market now you know there's so much choice in, in pop culture and society you know we didn't we didn't have the luxury of all that choice back then
0: no and in the 1980s, like I said, that was the beginning of the glut of baseball cards between 86 and 92. There were like millions and billions of cards and different, you know, um, manufacturers. So there was so much to choose from.
1: Yeah. And then, of course, the classic oversaturation of the market.
0: Right. Anyway, we've been speaking with Brad Belugian, author of Wax Pack, On the Open Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife, which hits the bookstores and internet on July on April 1st if I get the date right thank you Brad for being with us on the show today we really appreciate it
1: all right thanks for having me on
0: all right you've been listening to new books and sports a channel on new books network I'm Bob D'Angelo and thank you again for listening and until next time remember that the game is what matters